This is the Music Halls of Fame podcast. In honor of the 50th anniversary of hip-hop, we honor the year in music for 2009 along with a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class of 2009. We also make the case for putting OutKast into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Plus, our Spotlight Museum is the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. Before we get going with the podcast, like everyone tells you, please like, subscribe, and hit the notification bell so you'll know when these podcast episodes drop, which is usually every Thursday. Now, on to this week's episode. The year was 2009. In music, the major story of the year was the death of Michael Jackson. BET Television did a tribute to him, which was passable at best during their award ceremony. That, however, was overshadowed earlier in the day when Michael Jackson's father, Joe Jackson, did not talk about Michael during the press interviews, but rather decided that he wanted to push his own music project. Family love. Gotta love it. The MTV Video Music Awards also paid Michael a tribute with a performance by his sister Janet Jackson and a speech in the beginning of the award ceremony by Madonna, but even all that was overshadowed by the now infamous Kanye West interrupting Taylor Swift's speech incident. I'ma let you finish, Taylor. Meanwhile, in 2009, Chris Brown was charged with assaulting Rihanna the night before the Grammy Awards. The Concert House at Concert Hall opened in Copenhagen, Denmark. The inauguration of President Barack Obama drew star-studded music artist power to inauguration concerts and balls, including Beyonce, who got into trouble with singer Etta James because Etta didn't like the fact that Beyonce performed Etta's classic at last as the first dance song for the President and First Lady Michelle Obama. No one was quite sure what the beef was really about, perhaps because Etta James was another in a long line of artists who never really got paid any money from other artists for singing her songs. However, as you will see later, beef was the word of the year. And it wasn't just Etta versus Beyonce or Kanye versus Taylor or Rihanna versus Chris. The biggest album of the year in America was Taylor Swift's Fearless. The biggest album of the year worldwide, though, was by Britain's Got Talent contestant Susan Boyle. Other big albums were by U2, Lady Gaga, Eminem, Michael Buble, Andrea Bocelli, Jay-Z, The Black Eyed Peas, Kings of Leon, the Hannah Montana soundtrack, and three of Michael Jackson's albums, because death is always a great career move. You are just not around to enjoy the benefits, but your record label is. Michael Jackson was the biggest selling artist of the year, selling 35 million copies of his albums worldwide right after his death, along with his documentary, This Is It, becoming the biggest documentary of all time, making over $250 million. 2009 was also Lady Gaga's coming out party, with three of the biggest hits of the year being Just Dance, Telephone, and Poker Face. The Black Eyed Peas also had a big year with Boom Boom Pow and also I Got a Feeling. 
Other big selling singles of 2009 included Beyonce's Single Ladies, Taylor Swift's Love Story, and also You Belong With Me, Flo Rida's Right Round, Jason Mraz's I'm Yours, Kanye's Heartless, and the All-American Rejects' Give You Hell. In country music, Garth Brooks came out of his self-imposed exile to start a five-year Las Vegas residency. Country artists who also had big hits in 2009 were Sugarland, Lady Antebellum, now known as Lady A, Kenny Chesney, Toby Keith, Darius Rucker, Jason Aldean, Alan Jackson, Carrie Underwood, Rascal Flatts, George Strait, Blake Shelton, Keith Urban, and the Zac Brown Band. In hip-hop, it was absolutely the year of beef, as 50 Cent had beef with Rick Ross, Benny Siegel and 50 Cent had beef with Jay-Z, Method Man, and Joe Budden, Young Jeezy had beef with DJ Drama, Trina had beef with Kia, and Soldier Boy and Bow Wow had beef, and they decided to go at it, all of them, because none of them learned from the whole Biggie and Tupac beef. For instance, Joe Budden was physically attacked by Method Man's fellow Wu-Tang Clan member Raekwon a few months after that whole beef started. Idiots. Ending beef, however, that year were the game in 50 Cent, while Soldier Boy tried to end his beef with the New Boys. Didn't quite work out. Musically, Drake released his mixtape, So Far Gone, which had the song Best I Ever Had on it. Eminem's Crack a Bottle and Flo Rider's Right Round both hit number one, but the biggest and probably most enduring hip-hop song of 2009 was Jay-Z and Alicia Keys' New York City anthem, Empire State of Mind. Other big hits were Jay-Z and Rihanna's Run This Town and Kid Cudi's Day and Night. Big albums that year were released by Eminem, Jay-Z, 50 Cent, Rick Ross, Young Money, Jadakiss, Kid Cudi, Fabulous, Gucci Mane, and UGK. EDM started to become more mainstream in 2009, mainly due to David Guetta helping to produce the Black Eyed Peas album, making way for other artists to want to work with EDM producers, which led to the EDM explosion only a couple of years later. Other dance hits, besides the Black Eyed Peas, I Got a Feeling, and Boom Boom Pow, were LaRose, Bulletproof, Cascada's Evacuate the Dance Floor, Fetty Legrand's classic dance track, Put Your Hands Up for Detroit, David Guetta's Memories, and also the song Sexy Bitch with Akon, Boys Noises' Jeffer, Christine W.'s Be Alright, and Lady Gaga, of course, owned the dance floor with four hits that year. In Latin music, the biggest artists of the year included Aventura, who had the biggest album, Banda El Recordo, who had the biggest single, Wizen and Yandel, Luis Fonzi, Vicente Fernandez, Daddy Yankee, El Trono de Mexico, Nesti, Ricardo Arjona, and Tito El Bambino. On May 12, 2009, at a White House event celebrating poetry, Lin-Manuel Miranda tried out an idea he had by rapping about Alexander Hamilton. The response that he received inspired him to flesh out his idea some more, and that idea became the blockbuster Broadway sensation Hamilton, which came to Broadway in 2015. 
Meanwhile on Broadway, the 2009-2010 Broadway season was the first season that total box office grossed over $1 billion. Musicals or revivals that opened in 2009 included 9 to 5, the musical Bye Bye Birdie, Fella, Guys and Dolls, Irving Berlin's White Christmas, Hair, Memphis, the musical, Rock of Ages, and West Side Story. Bands who formed in 2009 included AWOL Nation, Basement, Diddy Dirty Money, Duck Sauce, Foster the People, Icona Pop, 21 Pilots, Nick Jonas and the Organization, and Zed's Dead. Bands that broke up in 2009 before their inevitable reunions or announced their hiatus included All Saints, Love and Rockets, Live, Blue Cheer, Danity Kane, Divinals, EMF, Oasis, after yet more beef between the Gallagher brothers, Peter, Paul and Mary, Fall Out Boy, Hanoi Rocks, The Verve, Violent Femmes, Stereo Lab, and Escape. Bands that either reunited or came back from extended breaks included the Bee Gees, Blink-182, Cinderella, Creed, The Cranberries, Faith No More, House of Pain, Johnny Hates Jazz, Mott the Hoople, Mr. Big, Fish, The Plastic Ono Band, Public Image Limited, Skunk Anansi, Spandau Ballet, Wang Chung, Sublime, and The Jacksons. Aside from Michael Jackson, other major musical deaths included guitarist Ron Ashton of the Stooges, guitar great Les Paul, DJ AM, who committed suicide, Billy Powell of Leonard Skinnerd, Dan Seals, Wayman Tisdale, blues great Coco Taylor, singer Al Martino, Avenged Sevenfold founder The Rev, singer Vic Chestnut, singer Carla Boney, singer Stephen Gately of Boyzone, singer Taylor Mitchell, singer Mercedes Sosa, DJ Rock Rada, singer Willie DeVille, drummer Uriel Jones of Motown's house band The Funk Brothers, Randy Kane of The Delphonics, Bob Bogle of The Ventures, rapper Dalla, Steve Ferguson of NRBQ, opera singer Shi Pei Pu, the father of Latin Boogaloo Joe Cuba, singer Vern Gosden, composer Maurice Jarre, singer Elaine Bouchong, singer Hank Lachlan, Lux Interior of the Cramps, Dewey Martin of Buffalo Springfield, and Mary Travers of Peter, Paul, and Mary. In awards for the music of 2009, at the Grammy Awards, Taylor Swift's Fearless won Album of the Year, making her, at the age of 20, the youngest winner of the award, until Billie Eilish did it a decade later at the age of 18. Record of the Year went to Kings of Leon's Use Somebody, Beyonce won Song of the Year for Single Ladies, and the Zac Brown Band won Best New Artist. At the MTV Video Music Awards, Beyoncé won Video of the Year for Single Ladies, although, as mentioned before, Kanye stole the show that year with his whole getting-up-on-stage routine. At the American Music Awards, Taylor Swift won Artist of the Year. The Billboard Music Awards weren't held that year. Lady Gaga's Born This Way won Favorite Album, and Katy Perry and Kanye's song E.T. won Favorite Song at the People's Choice Awards in 2009. Taylor Swift won Entertainer of the Year at the Country Music Association Awards and also Entertainer of the Year at the Academy of Country Music Awards. Beyoncé won Album of the Year at the Soul Train Music Awards. Florence and the Machine won Best British Album for Lungs and J.L.S., 
won Best Song for Beat Again at the Brit Awards. Michael Bublé's Crazy Love won Best Album, while his song Haven't Met You Yet won Best Song at the Juno Awards. Empire of the Sun won Album of the Year for Walking on a Dream and also won Song of the Year for the song of the same name, Walking on a Dream, at the ARIA Music Awards. At the Eurovision Singing Contest, which was held in Moscow, Russia that year, Alexander Ryback from Norway won for the song Fairy Tale. At the Tony Awards, Billy Elliot, the musical, won Best Musical, and Hair won Best Revival of a Musical. Steve Reich's piece, Double Sextet, won the Pulitzer Prize for Music. In the music categories for the Academy Awards, the soundtrack for the movie Up won Best Film Score, and the song Weary Kind from the movie Crazy Heart won Best Song. Speech to Bell won the Mercury Music Prize, becoming the first woman in seven years to win that award. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony took place on April 4th at Public Auditorium in, for the first time in 12 years, Cleveland, Ohio. It was also the first time that the public were allowed to buy tickets to the event. At the ceremony, bass guitarist Bill Black, drummer DJ Fontana, and keyboardist Spooner Oldman were inducted into the Sidemen category. It was the final year for the Sidemen category as the category was expanded upon in 2010 and became the Award for Musical Excellence category. In the Early Influencers category, the Hall inducted Wanda Jackson, and in the Performers category, the Hall inducted Metallica, Bobby Womack, Jeff Beck, Little Anthony and the Imperials, and this next group. The original nicknames to this group were DJ Run, Don of Curtis Blow, Easy D, and Jazzy Jace. In the very early 80s, there were three kids who grew up in Hollis, Queens. Joseph Simmons had an older brother named Russell, who was a hip-hop promoter and had started a record label with his college roommate, Rick Rubin, called Def Jam Records. Russell, at the time, promoted rapper Curtis Blow and needed someone to be Curtis's DJ. Joseph was recruited to be the DJ that time. And soon, Joseph wanted to rap. Russell let Joseph record one song, which went absolutely nowhere. In the meantime, Joseph had a friend called Daryl McDaniel. The two of them wanted to rap as a duo. At first, Russell said no because he didn't like Daryl's rap style, but eventually he said yes. They needed a DJ, though, so they got their friend, Jason Mazel. Russell then changed all their nicknames. Joseph DJ Run, son of Curtis Blow, became Run. Daryl Easy D became DMC, and Jason Jazzy Jace became Jam Master J, and the group became known as Run DMC. For the record, they all hated the name of the group, but it kind of grew on them after a while. They signed to Profile Records and released their first single, It's Like That. The song hit number 15 on the Billboard R&B charts. After that success, they released their first album, Run DMC, in 1984. That album had hits like Hard Times on it. It also had the transcending song, Rock Box, with a mixture of hip-hop and hard rock, complete with the blistering guitar of session musician Eddie Paul Martinez, 
The song was one of the first to combine what were, at least at that point, two separate worlds, black inner-city hip-hop and white heavy metal. Both were considered dangerous in the eyes of the mainstream, which actually made them a perfect combination for the kids. 1985 was a big year for the group from a career perspective. First, they released their next album, King of Rock, which further solidified their sound with the songs King of Rock and Can You Rock It Like This. They were then the only hip-hop act to perform at Live Aid. They followed that up with an appearance in the hit movie Crush Groove. 1986 saw their biggest success with one of the most important albums of the 1980s, Raising Hell. The album was produced by Rick Rubin, who had a major role in one of the most important songs of all time. The album was almost done when they decided to do one more song to pique interest from their fans who liked the hard rock sounds of King of Rock and Rockbox. After some discussion, they fell upon the idea of doing the song Walk This Way by Aerosmith. Originally, they were going to sample the song, but Rick and Jam Master Jay wanted to redo the song completely. They put out the call to Aerosmith to gauge interest. At first, there really wasn't any. What has to be remembered at this time is that in 1985, no one liked Aerosmith. Known as the Toxic Twins at that point, Aerosmith's Steven Tyler and Joe Perry were looked at as part of a group whose heyday was actually in the 1970s and had fallen on hard times and had literally broken up because they had a lot of drug, alcohol, and other internal band issues. They were at that point done as a band and literally a joke. Even with their careers in freefall, Stephen and Joe didn't actually want to do Walk This Way because they hated hip-hop. See, to them and a lot of other artists, hip-hop was taking their songs, using them without paying the artists, and making money off of them, which was essentially true, to be honest with you. The Toxic Twins wanted no part of it. Rick actually convinced them to come to the studio to try to work things out a little. And then once Stephen and Joe saw how Jam Master Jay could cut the record precisely where he wanted the beat to be at will on the turntables, they were fascinated. And then they wanted in on the collaboration. The music video also became iconic. The video unfolds with both acts on opposite sides of a wall. Then once Run DMC starts rapping loud to the beat, Stephen breaks through the wall with a mic stand. Then everybody ends up on a concert stage together as a show of solidarity and breaking down the barriers between both the rock and hip-hop cultures. Everybody sings Kumbaya and everybody hugs and holds hands in a sign of... Okay, it didn't get quite that crazy, but you get the idea. Rumor has it, though, that Stephen couldn't break down the wall at first, but they actually left that part in during the final cut for the video. The song, the album, and the music video all became huge hits, along with becoming icons in 1980s music. It also gave Aerosmith their career back as the band got back together and started putting out hit songs like Love in an Elevator, Dude Looks Like a Lady, Angel, Jaded, and many, many others. After the success of Raising Hell, Run DMC put out Tougher Than Leather and Down With The King, but by then... The sound that the group had pioneered had already changed, 
and so did they. Run, for instance, became a minister, while Jay became a producer, producing the group Onyx, who had the hit song Slam. The three guys started to not get along, and they started to go their separate ways musically. Unfortunately, in 2002, Jam Master Jay was shot and killed in his studio in Queens, New York. His murder was finally solved almost 20 years later. Run DMC was one of the most influential hip-hop groups of all time. They later influenced rock rap acts like Korn, Kid Rock, Limp Bizkit, The Prodigy, and others. They were the first hip-hop act on American Bandstand, the first hip-hop act to earn a gold album with Run DMC, the first hip-hop act to have a platinum album with King of Rock, and the first hip-hop act to have a multi-platinum album with Raising Hell. They were also the first hip-hop act to get played on MTV, and they were the first hip-hop act to be nominated for a Grammy Award. Presented for induction by Class of 2023 Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Eminem, Joseph Revrun Simmons, Daryl DMC McDaniels, Jason Jam Master J. Mizell, Run DMC inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Class of 2009. Before we get to the rest of the podcast, we'd like to tell you about our other podcast, the Music History Today podcast. Every day we tell you what happened on that date in music history along with music releases, birthdays, and passings. So, if you like this podcast and want more music history, then please search the Music History Today podcast in audio or video form on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast from. This week, we're going to look at the case for putting Outcast into next year's class of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. When you talk about Southern hip-hop, you cannot talk about it without talking about outcasts. They're the ones who put the Southern sound on the hip-hop map. What they did, which went beyond what even other Southern hip-hop artists did, was that they experimented with different sounds like R&B, funk, rock, jazz, and even a little EDM just thrown in for good measure. In fact, they were actually one of the first hip-hop acts to embrace EDM and rave culture into their music. Their albums were always different and original. They haven't actually recorded together since the 2006 album, Idlewind, and their heyday was actually from 1994 to 2003. But their influence on Southern hip-hop is immeasurable. They literally broke down the door for other Southern acts to follow. Now, if you want to get your feet wet with them, then go with Big Boy and Dre Presents Outkast. If you want to deep dive, then go with their Grammy Award-winning album, Speaker Box The Love Below, which was their double album that actually won the Grammy Award for Album of the Year. First hip-hop act to do that. Also, you should check out their album, Aqua Mini, and also the album, Stankophilia. As to whether Outkast belongs in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the answer is yes. Two of their albums are on Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time list. So you would think that that alone should get them in. 
You would also think that being the standard bearer of Southern hip-hop would get them in. Yet, they probably won't get in without winning the fan vote. The reason? Same reason as before. It's hip-hop. The Hall members do not put many acts in, even ones who should obviously get in. In fact, they seem to only be limited to one slot per year, and that's about it. For that reason, I'm not sure if they're going to get in in the next few years, but they certainly deserve to be. This week's museum is the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. The museum is located on the National Mall, right across the street from the Washington Monument, actually. The museum highlights the experiences and contributions to specifically America, but also more broadly, the world. A lot of the museum deals with slavery and civil rights. There's a slave cabin, for instance, an airplane that was flown by a member of the Tuskegee Airmen, as well as items pertaining to the military, religion, literature, and politics. The museum also has an extensive collection of artifacts concerning music. The museum boasts Chuck Berry's pink Cadillac, stage costumes worn by Parliament Funkadelic, and many others, along with other recordings, sheet music, photos, and such. And there's also a great online resource on their website, where they put a lot of their collection online to look at. The museum is open daily from 10 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. Admission is free. After all, your tax dollars paid for it. However, the only way that you can walk into the museum without a pass is if you show your military ID. Otherwise, you either have to try to get time passes in the morning if you want to go, which run out really quickly, or you can get passes in advance online. Check the museum's website, nmaahc.si.edu, for information about the time passes, and yes, we will throw that website into the show notes. In the museum's archives is an extensive photography collection of hip-hop historian and former Def Jam Records publicist Bill Adler. Bill amassed what could be described as the largest and most important photo collection of hip-hop artists and culture of the 20th century. It has over 400 photographs covering hip-hop from the early 1980s to the early part of the 21st century. This collection comes on the heels of the museum's 9-CD and coffee table book box set on the history of hip-hop, along with photos and music from artists such as LL Cool J, the museum also has items from this pioneer. On August 11th, 1973, there was a party that was held in the basement of 1520 Sedgwick Avenue in Bronx, New York, about a mile away from Yankee Stadium, give or take. It was to celebrate a girl's birthday. Like most kids who have parties, the first thing you do is you get your friends and family to help you throw it, and this girl was no different. It just so happened that this girl got her brother to DJ the party. The brother, Clive Campbell, a.k.a. DJ Cool Herc, was born on April 16, 1955 in Kingston, Jamaica. 
He spent his first years growing up in Jamaica, but his family moved to the Bronx, New York, when he got a little older. As he went out to parties and was learning how to become a DJ, he noticed something about the way the DJs spun their records. They would do a call and response and talk over the records at certain points. He also noticed that people would come out to dance mainly during the parts of the song where the drums kicked in, otherwise known as the drum break, in order to try out new moves. So he had an idea. What if he took the drum part of the song and actually made it longer? He worked on the idea with two turntables and a microphone, put the same record on both turntables so that while one was playing, he could use the other one to go back to the point of the song where he needed to get to, sometimes scratching the record in order to do it. He called this trick the merry-go-round. Finally, on August 11, 1973, at the age of 18, Herc brought his invention out into the open in front of the biggest crowd at the time, his sister's birthday party. He threw up two copies of a James Brown record onto the turntables. The crowd figured that he would do a transition between the records. Instead, he did his merry-go-round trick. These days, it's known as the breakbeat. The crowd went wild. And soon, word spread on the new style and the people started copying it. Some started rapping over it. Soon, the organic style of music, first known as rap, and now known as hip-hop, took its first major steps. It all started in the Bronx on August 11, 1973, when the kid's brother, DJ Cool Herc, took two turntables and a microphone and helped to invent not only a new style of music, but also helped to change world music along with world youth and street culture. The music has been banned. It has been ridiculed. It has been the subject of many, many racial attacks. It has incurred many a conservative's wrath. It has been legislated against. Some of its creators, like Public Enemy, 2 Live Crew, and NWA, have been declared enemies of the state. Yet, through it all, the attempted cancellations and the cries of wokeness because of various culture wars over the decades, long before Ron DeSantis, I might add, it survived and thrived, much like the culture and the people who it came from. Happy 50th anniversary, hip-hop, and thank you, DJ Cool Herc. We couldn't have done it without you, quite literally. You can see photos and learn much more about the legendary DJ Cool Herc in the archives of the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. And that is it for this episode of the Music Halls of Fame podcast. For more podcast episodes, which drop every Thursday in audio and video form, then please like, subscribe, and click the notification bell on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast from. <laughs>